Good morning, and welcome to Good morning, and welcome to Grace. We have a lot of different opportunities on campus that we want to make you aware of. As we look ahead, Sunday, July 4th, we will be transitioning to one service at 10:30 a.m. During the 9:30 hour, we will be offering our Connect Group classes. July 11th through the 15th is our VBS, Rocky Railway, Jesus Power pulls us through. We still need help with volunteers, so please check the back table for ways that you can volunteer to help. We have different ways to stay connected through the week. Uh, on Wednesdays, 6 o'clock, Grace Students meets in the youth room and in the gym. At 6.30, Pastor Gary's class meets in Section C. And at 7.30, our young adults group meets in the room behind the auditorium. Ways to get involved today. We have blessing bags in the back of the auditorium that you can pick up and hand out to people in the community. We are also still accepting donations for Lifeline Pregnancy Center baby bottles. And as you leave, we still have offering boxes in the back that you can give if you are able. Thank you for joining us, and I'll turn it over to Pastor Jay. Good morning. So glad to see all of you here today at Grace Baptist Church. I also want to welcome you and thank you for being here. I want to just follow up with a couple of the um, announcements that uh, Dan shared with us this morning. First of all, again, that is next Sunday that we go back to one service. And so we will be having our connect groups at 930 and then followed by our one service at 1030. And so please um, come back uh, next week at the appropriate time. We'd love to have you um, back with us next week. Also, on the uh, 4th of July picnic, I want to clarify that a little bit. Um, we need you to sign up for that by tomorrow, and you can sign up in one of two ways. One, you can sign up online, 
or you can also call the church office and we will make sure that we will um, get you on the list. We will be providing all of the food for you. You don't need to bring anything. Uh, the church will be providing that. But again, we need to place the order for food tomorrow. So if you could get that to us um, by tomorrow, that would, be, that would be very helpful. And then also, while we are using the term picnic, uh, we actually are going to eat indoors. So you don't have to worry about uh, lawn chairs. You don't have to worry about the weather and some of those things that can uh, complicate a picnic. Uh, we will be inside. And so please join us next week as we celebrate um, Independence Day and also going back to one service, which we are very excited about. I want to just highlight a group that is with us uh, this morning, Christian Cheerleaders of America. To my right, we want to welcome um, them to our service. And we are hosting here a camp this week, and there's going to be teams from North Carolina and Virginia. And so uh, they have team members from all over, and they travel and minister. So we're so thankful to have uh, President Rose Clevenger and her husband Jerry with us, Judy Hall, and her husband Mitch that are with us this morning. Got a chance to meet you a little bit beforehand. Welcome, and thank you for being here today. We're so glad to have you in our service. If you're visiting otherwise, uh, we'll greet you in a little bit and tell you how you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, and we'll do that in just a little bit. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you this morning uh, for the opportunity to be here together to worship. Father, we come before you humbled by your grace and thanking you for your mercy and the opportunity to be a part of the body of Christ. And that's not just something we come as a spectator and watch happen. It's something that we do as a participant in worship. You've called each and every believer to be uh, people who worship you. And today we have gathered together in this place as a body to worship and to lift our voices to you and to sing praises to you and also to learn more about you from your word. I pray that our time together would be profitable for us spiritually, uh, but we also pray that we would uh, be faithful in our worship this morning, that we would worship you from our hearts in an attitude of love and appreciation for the gospel and for the finished work of Christ that we can enjoy this morning, for those of us that know Christ as our Savior, we thank you for that and the opportunity to have a personal relationship with you. So bless our service today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Wes. Good morning. It is great to see all of you here this morning. We're going to begin our, our worship time by singing a song here that we've been learning as a congregation for the last couple of weeks. So let's stand and let's sing The Lion and the Lamb.
Third at break of dawn. 
rising sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed by Jesus
God is indeed worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise because of all that he is and because of all that he's done for us. But, but worship is more than just something that we do when we come to church on Sunday mornings. Uh, worship is more than just the songs and the words that we offer to our God. Worship is first and foremost about offering God our lives and offering him our bodies as a living sacrifice, which the book of Romans says is really our only reasonable response to the incredible love and mercy that Christ has shown for us. Let's stand once again and let's sing a song about presenting ourselves to God just the way we are as a living sacrifice. Just as I
take just a moment to welcome those of you this morning that might be visiting with us for the very first time. If this is your first time here at Grace, we want to extend a warm welcome to you and thank you for joining us today. Um, In the pew in front of you, there should be a card and on that card is printed a QR code that looks like the one on the screen behind me. And what we would ask, if you could take your smartphone, you can scan that QR code. It'll take you to a place where you can just fill out a couple of questions for us, answer a couple of simple questions for us. And then that also gives us the opportunity to follow up with you. If you have any questions about our ministry, any way we can be of assistance to you, we would certainly love to be able to do that. This has been a marvelous tool for us to get to meet and know some uh, visitors that come to our church for the first time. So let me encourage you to do that. If this is your first time at Grace, or maybe you haven't been here for a while, you're joining us in the middle of a series, and we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. And uh, we have been studying together the life of David, and my goal for this study has not been so that we can walk away with some historical events and know some historical things that happened in the life of David and the period of time in which uh, he was rising to eventually become the king over Israel. That's, That's really not the point of this. The point is, hopefully, prayerfully, we can use this to um, practically apply these events to our own personal lives. And the Bible is not sort of written to be a case study for counseling scenarios. Um, However, we see some very real counseling issues uh, that we're going to be facing in this text this morning that very often um, I've seen this in my counseling ministry, some of these dynamics, and hopefully, prayerfully, we can Um, maybe identify them in our own lives and correct those, Um, but we certainly want to learn from uh, what we find in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. By the way, when it comes to some of the people, the individuals that God used throughout the history of salvation in the Old Testament, New Testament, we find some people, uh, there are some examples in Scripture that we should not emulate. There are people that we should not copy what they do just because the Bible says they did this or they took this action. It's not necessarily a correct action, so we want to be very mindful that we don't emulate those in Scripture that would be disobeying God. And in this case, the scenario we're going to be looking at this morning, 
please do not live your life and model it after King Saul, as we look at him in just a moment. But instead, we also see in Scripture examples of individuals that God used that would stand out as examples to us. They're not perfect. They are far from perfect. But we see in their hearts and in their lives people that we can emulate. And David is certainly going to stand out as as one of those characters. So as we begin this morning, I want you to do me a favor. You don't have to write this down. You don't have to say this out loud. But answer this question honestly. Honest between you and the Lord. Is there currently, or has there ever been in your life, someone that you have been envious of, jealous of, resentful toward, bitter against? If you answered no, that's never happened to you, I love you very much, but I don't believe you. We have all had someone currently or someone in our past that we have become jealous of, envious of. Why is that? Well, we're going to find in the life of King Saul, as we're going to look at him this morning and David, we're going to find that this is part of the undoing of Saul. It really was his jealousy, his envy toward this upstart young man named David that gets him in a place where he is willing to do some very unthinkable and unimaginable things. You see, when we become envious or jealous of someone, what we really are saying is this, that person has something that I want, something that I need, or even more particularly, they have something, here it is, something that I deserve. In this case, David is getting the praise and accolades of the people in which Saul was called to be king over. He's getting all the headlines. He's getting all of the attention. He's getting all of the praise. And Saul can't swallow that. That's just beyond his ability to accept the fact that this young man is becoming increasingly successful, increasingly loved by the people, that he's being used in miraculous ways. This is untenable to Saul. He can't swallow this bitter pill. He can't take it. And what happens is when we become envious or jealous of someone, that person consumes a lot of our time and a lot of our emotional energy. Why is that? Well, because we spend a lot of time thinking about them. Far more time of me or you thinking about them than they're thinking about you, by the way. We ruminate over them. We do what Saul did to David in the opening verses of chapter 18. We watch them. Remember what the text says, that when David is now on the rise, and the text tells us earlier in chapter 18 that David was eyed by Saul. Everything David did, Saul watched him. Every breath he took, he was there observing his actions. Saul was increasingly consumed by this man, David. I tell my kids this all the time. Why would you give this kind of control to somebody? Why would you ever allow someone into your heart and into your life that you have become resentful over that they would dictate where your time, energy, and emotional expenditure of emotions go? Why would you do that? Well, 
In the meantime, we're measuring ourselves against them. Why am I not more like that person? Why am I not achieving the level of quote-unquote success that they are having? And then we spend a lot of time wondering what that person thinks of us, and usually very often they think nothing about us. They're not worried about you. You know, life is like a tangled slinky. And actually, when we look at the life of Saul, he's like a tangled slinky. You remember the slinky days when they were really possible? We had a a very steep staircase in a house in New England, and I had this image when our kids would get a slinky, you'd put it on the top step like the commercial, and it would just walk its way down. It would be this great, wonderful toy. And in about 6.4 seconds, it was this tangled mess. And father in Greek means the untangler of other things, right? And so you would take it out, and you would try to fix this thing, and then as soon as the children weren't watching, you did the right thing, you threw it away. Because you knew in a matter of seconds they would forget about it anyway. We can't oversimplify humanity. See this in the old biblical counseling model, which was, hey, take these two verses and get over it. Okay, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that when we look at this idea of Saul being envious and jealous, and he's, he's now becoming angry and becoming resentful and he's becoming bitter, it's more complicated than we can just quickly dismiss this or quickly solve this issue. But we also understand that very often when we become envious and resentful, we try what Saul tried in the opening verses of chapter 18, which I describe as a very direct method of showing his distaste for David when he took his javelin and tried to pin David to the wall. That's pretty direct. I hate you. I would like for you to be dead. And I'm going to throw a sharp object at you to cause you bodily harm. Now, prayerfully, you've never done that to a person, and please don't. But very often, we express our envy and jealousy through our outbursts of anger, through our harsh words, through our ghosting people. And there are other times, however, that we do what Saul now resorts to in the second part of chapter 18, which is a much more subtle form of envy and jealousy. In fact, in this section, what we are going to find is Saul now begins to employ this very indirect method. I'm going to put a word on it, and it's a, it's a word we pray is not true about us, but I would ask for you to consider if this is true about you, because what Saul is going to do now is good old-fashioned manipulation. And so we're working from the same terms. I want to define the English word manipulation for you. It simply means exerting shrewd or devious influence, especially for one's own advantage. Manipulators know how to play people. They know how to use people for their own advantage. And so we need to be aware, certainly, of those that are trying to manipulate us, but we also want to be aware of kind of the classic characteristics of a manipulator. And so this morning, let's take a look at the life of Saul and David, and let's take a look at two classic characteristics of a manipulator. And we're going to start with the very first one we find in chapter 18, verses 17, 18, and 19. We see that manipulators play on emotions. Watch what Saul does. Pick up reading in verse, seven, verse 17 of chapter 18. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. 
I will give her to you for a wife. Now, hit the pause button for a second. If you're, if you're paying attention, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know that when we looked at the scenario that we've in our vernacular we call David and Goliath, I would submit to you it's really not about David and Goliath at all. It's actually about David and Saul. But in that, in that account, what we find is that Saul had promised whoever kills this giant that he was going to be given one of his daughters to marry. Well, apparently he has not fulfilled yet his role of this promise that he had made previously. But notice, there's some, there's some uh, characteristics that need to be met here, some qualifications that need to be met before he's going to give away um, his oldest daughter, Merib. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. I'm going to submit to you that these opening words of Saul are downright manipulative, playing on David's emotions, playing even on David's own strengths. Why would you say that, Pastor Jay? Well, because the Scripture tells us what Saul is actually thinking. We heard his words. Be valiant, David. Fight the Lord's battles. Okay, I'm going to inflect it differently in a moment, and I'll read to you why. Notice the text tells us, for Saul thought. God not only knows our words that come out of our mouth, he knows our thinking. And in this case, under the inspiration of God, we have an insight into the thought process that Saul is practicing. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. What is Saul thinking? I want this man dead. I want him dead. I want him dead so that he's no longer a threat to me. I am so jealous and envious of this man. I want him obliterated. I want him annihilated. But Saul now is coming maybe to this realization after throwing the spear at David that maybe that's not the smartest play. He is, after all, the king. Maybe a better play is to manipulate this so that David will now go out to battle and prayerfully he doesn't come back. Prayerfully, this man is eliminated from my life and I don't have to touch him. So let me inflect Saul's words for you that I would submit to you, reflect a little bit more of what he's actually thinking. He might not have said it this way, but if you think about his thought process, it was something more along these lines. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. You get the difference? Fighting the Lord's battles, we've all heard these lines, I'll give you an illustration of this in a moment, that sometimes you've had your emotions played on, in the name of the Lord, you need to do this. And sometimes, unfortunately, it has been used in ways that become manipulative. Notice what happens, we'll explain that more in a minute. Notice what happens, it says, and David said to Saul, now we get a little insight into David's character, by the way, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? David says in all humility, I am not qualified to be considered to be a son-in-law of the king because I am from a very humble background. I'm from a shepherding family. I'm from a farming family. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the social standing. Who am I to be one that would take the hand of the king's daughter? 
He's saying basically this, I don't deserve that. I'm not good enough for that. And he's not saying this in self-pity. He's saying this with a true heart of realizing social standing-wise at that time, he wasn't qualified to be the king's son-in-law. Well, Saul being Saul, now we go through what happens um, with this promise. It says in verse 19, but at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now, if you follow through that marriage, by the way, um, you can go to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, and what you'll find out is once Merib and, um, and, and Adriel get married, they have five sons. And these five sons, along with two other of Saul's descendants, are put to death. They're actually hung because of Saul violating a covenant with the Gibeonites. They are actually put to death. Thanks, Grandpa Saul. Okay, so these, this marriage produces these children that are eventually put to death. So now let's, that's, a, that's, that's all that being said. Let's look at the words that Saul uses and understand this idea that there are times in life people use religious language in order to manipulate. And sometimes the language may not be so religious as much as it is playing on the emotion of another person. So look at Saul's conditions of this marriage. Serve me bravely. This had to be ongoing military service. Now, he understood that David has already demonstrated this. David has already understood that he is a man of courage. He's a man of bravery. He was the only one as a young child who stepped out onto the battlefield and took on Goliath single-handedly. He's already proven his courage. But in order for him to marry this daughter, there had to be an ongoing promise and commitment of military service. But the phrase that I want to I plant on and focus on for a moment is this idea of fight the Lord's battle. Not only was he fighting for the king, he was fighting for God. In a sense, he is appealing to David's spiritual maturity. David? If you loved God, you would do what I ask. If you truly love God, you're going to fall in line and do what I've asked you to do. You know, let me give you a couple of illustrations sometimes of where this manipulative mindset comes into play. And again, I'm suggesting that this is used as flattery and manipulation because Saul doesn't believe that. We already have his intention is to cause bodily harm to David. I've seen this happen, and you probably have seen this happen. This is, this is um, confession time on my part. I hate asking for money. I detest it. When I have to stand in front of any group of people and ask for donations, ask people to give money. It makes me physically <laughs> ill. I don't like it. I don't, I don't appreciate it. Why? Well, because I have seen times, you have seen times in which the giving time in a church service has been used to become manipulative. You've seen it. I've seen it be a play on emotions. 
a play on people giving money. Now, let me, let me be clear. The Bible teaches very staunchly, very directly, that we are to be faithfully giving to the work of the ministry. It's in the Old Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament. For a New Testament believer, we are called to be sacrificial, regular giving to the work of the ministry. Say that unapologetically. That is, that is all throughout the New Testament. It's presented to us in a way that we are to take a portion of our financial income and we are to give it to the work of the ministry. And you're probably not following this as closely as, as I am, but one of the results of COVID-19 has been a couple of very concerning trends in churches, one being that giving has been declining um, because of the COVID-19 thing, and, and we have been no different. Um, our giving has declined, and so I would prayerfully ask you to um, continue to give to the work of our ministry here at Grace. But also, people coming to attending live services has also declined. Um, but we would encourage people, if you're watching online and you physically can't be here, we understand that. But our preference, I think the New Testament principle, is that we are here in, in person. And so while God gives us this commandment to give, I do not believe that giving money is something that we manipulate people to do. I'll give you another illustration. To me, a little bit more concerning. I've seen this in churches, and I've seen this more than I would like to remember. The whole idea of an altar call. I grew up in churches that did that. It came out of the whole tent meeting idea, and it came out of the revivalistic idea. There's nothing wrong with altar calls. That's certainly not the point. But I, I remember being a kid or being in these services where the altar call became this time of outright manipulation, playing on the emotions of people. If you loved God, you would be here at the front. If you loved God, you would leave your seat right now. I was in a service one time. I will never forget this. There was a speaker, and he was giving an altar call, and on about the 74th stanza of Just As I Am, there was one man standing about right there. No, I wasn't here. I wasn't at this church. Standing about right there, third pew back, standing there like this. And so the speaker said, let me, that's one more, one more stanza, one more. It's like, I wonder who he's waiting to come forward. And the more we sang, the more the man stood there. After the service, as God would have it, I had opportunity to talk to three groups of people. The first group of people was a group of one, the speaker. Yeah, I couldn't do anything to get that guy up front. So that was your point? That, that was your stated goal? Saul's stated goal? I want to kill this guy. And I'm just going to manipulate his emotions to get him in a place that I can take him out. This man's, he wasn't, he didn't say, I want that man to come and get spiritually right with God. It was almost this personal insult that he couldn't get that man to come forward. As God would have it, I had opportunity to talk to that man after the service. He said, if that man thought I was coming up there after he manipulated me like that, there is no way. I talked to a third group of people. That said, this group was larger than one. You know why I went forward? 
Because we were going to be there for seven years. We were going to sing till Jesus comes if we didn't get this over with. There is, God's not in that. The Holy Spirit is not in that. I, I, that is manipulation. Okay, I'm an imperfect human being. I will never manipulate you. I will challenge you to give. I will challenge you to repent of your sin. I will challenge you to make right decisions. Of course, that's what preaching is kind of for. You know, as a pastor, it's like you stand there. It's like, I know the magic words to get you to do what I would want you to do. I, I know what they are. And, and Saul here understands David's thinking. He understands David's characteristics, that David, you've got to be a man of valor. And David, you've got to fight the Lord's battles. What's David going to say? say? I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. Of course he's not. Now, before you let yourself off the hook too quickly, I, I, made, I made a list yesterday of my top 10 phrases that indicate you might be a manipulator through my... 20 years of marital and other counseling ministry that I have heard through the years. The most famous one, these are in no particular order, but if you've said this, are saying this, please stop saying this, but you've heard this before, if you loved me, you would. You might even be more spiritual and say, if you loved God, you would. Here's a good one. I thought you were different. Number three, I know you probably don't like me but I would do the same for you if you asked me. No one else will ever love you the way I love you. You're impossible to get along with. It's your fault that I committed that sin. If you would just, you're the only one I can count on, you're my only friend. Here's my personal favorite. I'm going to start. I don't charge for counseling. Just remember, you get what you pay for. But, but I'm going to start charging for this. Whenever I hear the words always and never, I'm going to start charging $100 every time. You always do this. You never do that. Okay, nobody's that consistent. Nobody. Nobody. But notice these comments. Here's what we're passing today. How are they manipulative? Think about it. They all shift blame to somebody else. This is your fault. I did X, Y, or Z because of you. Or if you loved me the way you're supposed to love me, I wouldn't do that. They also refuse to accept personal responsibility. But most importantly, all 10 of these statements are playing on your emotions. And you know what? They are, that kind of thinking is emotionally exhausting. Now, let me, let me say, this is off the top of my head. My wife's in nursery today, so she's not looking at me like, what are you going to say? <laughs> you can tell her what I said later. When, sometimes as independent Baptists, we have taken emotion and dismissed it completely. I, I'm not saying that emotions are not part of our humanity. There is a proper way to express our emotions. I'm not discounting that. And sometimes in our worship, it becomes a little flatline. 
We don't want to be crazy, out of control. We're not going to do that. But at the same time, we're not discounting emotions and humanity. What I am saying is we don't manipulate people based on their emotion. And so often, if we're honest, we don't always take people and directly manipulate them as much as we do it very subtly with our words and we play on people's emotions. I want you to look in the last few minutes this morning a second characteristic of a manipulator and that is number two they use people for their personal advantage. If if you didn't get worked up over the first section of this sermon that's fine but watch Saul's actions now. Here's the image, I'll, I'll, I'll tip you off. Here's the image that comes to my mind when I read the last few verses of this chapter. This sounds like a middle school table at lunch. This is what this sounds like. This is like a snapshot of like a bunch of eighth graders getting together. Notice what happens. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Okay, hit the pause button again. Notice, the text tells us what Saul's motive is. His daughter, one of his other daughters, is in love with David. I mean, what's not to love? He's courageous. He's handsome. He's got the dreamy eyes we've talked about many times. Of course, I mean, he's this handsome, courageous guy of character. What a guy. Well, Michael loves David. As a dad, I have one daughter, and I pity the man whoever dates my daughter, because it's not going to, I love you, honey. I think you're way over there. Um, It's not going to go super well for him. But Saul's approach here is, you want my daughter? You can have her. Because she's going to be a snare to him. I'm going to get what I want after all. She might be the very person that I can manipulate and use so he gets killed. This is great in Saul's mind. How would you like to be Saul's daughter, by the way? How would you like to be in Michael's shoes? Thanks, Dad. The text goes on and it says, Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded... Okay, this is where it gets middle schoolish. Notice, now Saul commanded his servants. He calls a staff meeting. Hey guys, come in, I got to talk to you about something. What I want you to do, guys, is speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king delights in you. And all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. This is like eighth grade, and you go to the, you know, there's a girl you have a crush on or whatever, and you go to all your friends and go tell her that I like her. This is pathetic. This is downright manipulation. It is childish. It is sinful. It's crazy. And notice, it goes on, and Saul's servants do this. Saul's servants spoke those words to the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am poor and have no reputation? The flattery here that David receives from the servants of Saul, they don't get his attention. They don't leave him 
you know, big-headed and him walking around, like, I must be pretty special. David doesn't fall for this little trick. And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus so shall you say to David. The king, again, he goes, sends his servants back. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David, again, I wonder what Saul's up to. Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So he sets the dowry. David can't afford the dowry. He has no money. He can't afford to pay the dowry that would normally come with marrying one of the king's daughters. So Saul comes up with a plan that he can go out and he can bring back a hundred foreskins off the Philistines. This is a very brutal thing. We're not going to get into all the details this morning. Verse 26, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went out along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael as his wife. I would imagine that Saul had some very mixed emotions when David comes back with not 100, but 200 of the foreskins off the Philistines, I'm sure there was a very real sense of disappointment. The hope was that this dowry would, in fact, be his undoing. Now, I'm going to give Saul a little bit of credit, not in the positive sense, though. He understood humanity. He understood how the minds of people Work And in our last few minutes, I want to focus on one single word. Again, we've seen that Saul is manipulating and using to his own ends his daughter, Michael. He is using and manipulating his servants to get what he wants. What he wants is David dead. But I want to come back to the one word that says back in verse 20, let me, 21, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him. This is an interesting word. It comes from the Hebrew word uh, malkesh. It means to bait, to lure, to act as a snare. Anything that can entrap, entangle, or put someone under control. This word snare is used three times in the opening books of the Bible. I won't read them all to you. But in Exodus 23, verse 33, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me for you serve their gods. It will surely be a snare to you. Exodus 34, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go lest it become a snare in your midst. Deuteronomy 7, 16, and you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God has given over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you, a trap to you, an entanglement to you. And we know as the people of God that this is what happened to them when they didn't follow God's commandments. Now, so it leads to the question then, why would Michael become a snare to David? Well, I want to be careful here. The text doesn't tell us exactly why this would be the case, but let me suggest to you three possible 
ways in which marrying Michael would be a snare to David. First of all, she would be a distraction from his military responsibilities. This could place David in political danger. What do you mean? I mean this. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is benefit to being single. For a person who is not married, there is an advantage because they are not entangled with certain responsibilities that comes along with being married. Not that marriage is wrong. Clearly, marriage is promoted very openly in Scripture. But the point of Paul's statement is a single believer is not any less of a believer. They are whole and fulfilled in Christ. And those that are single can have ministries very often that married people cannot. So there was a, a, a po- very real possibility that Michael would serve as a distraction from David's military action. But the flip side is this. She may also encourage him to fight the Philistines to fulfill his commitment to her own father, and she could very easily inflame his desire to demonstrate his bravery and to go out and be courageous, which would put him in physical danger. But third, and I want to be very careful with this one, and I'll read you a verse in just a second, Um, But there is a suggestion based in the next chapter that she was possibly wrapped up in some form of idolatry, which would place David in a spiritual, at spiritual risk. You can take a look at verse 13 of chapter 19, which we'll get to later. But it says, Michael took an image, okay, that was in her house. Where did this image come from? This idol, where did it come from? and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covers it. It's, it's possible that this is an indication that there was some aspect of Michael in which she was prone to practicing idolatry. Now, the word snare. I want to challenge you in this particular area. I used to say something for a long time that I don't say anymore because I don't believe it's true. I used to say, well, some people just don't have an addictive personality. Scratch that. Everybody has an addictive personality. It depends on the bait. It depends on the lure. David here, under Saul rather, understands that David possibly has the lure of A woman. Does Samson come to mind? David's life is going to prove later that, in fact, this was an issue for David. And, in fact, it became a really big issue for his son Solomon. And so we understand that each and every one of us have some kind of lure or allurement that draws us away from living right lives. Jesus said in John 8, truly, truly, I say unto you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under sin. Every one of us 
Every one of us is prone to sinful choices and sinful decisions. Years ago, about almost probably 20 years ago, I was preaching a message and I made a statement from a pulpit. I said that I am a sinner who sins and on, a, on more than I would like to admit, I choose sinful things and I make sinful choices. This man, as soon as the service was over, this man bolted to the front of the church, eyes as big as saucers, and he says, I can't believe you said that. Said what? I can't believe you stood up in front of this church and told people you're sinful. You're a pastor. You're so, here's what he said. You're supposed to live perfect. You're our example. You can't admit you're sinful. I said, sir, there's only one perfect example, and that's Jesus Christ. And I am not him. In fact, it might very well be that when we put pastors on this pedestal, that when they do live out their sinfulness, we're somehow shocked and destroyed because our faith was in a man, not in our Savior. There is no perfect human being. There is no human being that is not tempted to sin. There is not a person who doesn't fall into this attraction to sinfulness because we are all born sinners. Now, here's what happens. There are some sins that don't appeal to me. We were talking about this in our, at our little family bizarreness yesterday. We were talking about that I have an aversion to spending money. It, okay, talking about money, asking you to give money makes me nauseous. Spending money, like, makes me violently ill. I, not because I love money, but just because I don't like the process of spending it. So I told, or, you know, I told my family, look, guys, if we go into a restaurant and something costs more than $4, we're not eating there. And I, I then get a very long lecture from my wife about the fact that it's not 1981 anymore. I understand that. I, I could walk, I could, you could give me $5,000, walk through a souvenir shop, and I'm walking out with $5,000. I just don't particularly get the whole spend money thing. I don't have an attraction to substances. I've never, I've never under, quote unquote, understood some who struggle with alcohol or struggle with, with drugs or struggle with some of these things. I, I've never experienced that. That's not a hook for me. It's not a bait for me. I've never struggled with that in my life. But here's the problem. The problem is those are the areas we become very self-righteous. And we start to judge people that do struggle with. I have met with people through, the, through, the year, through my years of ministry that say they got saved, they came to Christ, and God delivered them from whatever sin, alcohol, for instance. And on this column, I have met with people who have come to Christ, they've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, and yet they struggle with that sin for the rest of their lives. Why is that? I'll give you a deep theological answer. I don't know. What I do know is this. All of us are sinful. All of the ones who have been delivered from sin X are still committing sin Y. They're still wrestling with a different one. Yes, God may deliver them from that one, but there is something that if, 
if given the opportunity, they are going to struggle with that sin. So here's what I want you to do. Again, do not answer this out out loud, but I want you to answer this question and fill in this blank. When what? When X. Fill in the blank. When this is placed in front of you, you have a very difficult time saying no. We all have something we fill that blank in with. And so when we talk about this from a New Testament idea, the idea of slave to sin comes up over and over again, that we are not to be slaves to sin. We are not to be ensnared by sinfulness. Why? Well, Romans 6, 18, we have been set free from sin. We are to be slaves of righteousness. Chapter 6 of Romans, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But here's our struggle, folks. This is reality for all of us. There are two groups of sinners in the world. There are sinners who have never received Christ as their Savior. They have never been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They have never put their faith in Christ. The Bible says clearly all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Notice there's no asterisk besides it that footnotes pastors are exempt from that. No, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin, the book of Romans tells us, the wages of our sin is death. That's why we physically die. That's why death is passed upon all men. However, the deeper problem with death is it's also a spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve based on our sinfulness. There are those, maybe you're here this morning, and you have rejected the idea that Christ is the Savior. You have rejected the idea that He's the only way to heaven. And you have rejected the idea that it's only faith in Christ that can redeem you from your sin. If that is you, you will remain forever a slave to your sin. You are enslaved. The sins of Gambling, the sins of alcohol, the sins of drugs, the sexual sins of our culture, they promise you freedom, but in reality, they bring bondage and destruction. But there's an answer. The answer is for those that rest in column two of sinners. Those are sinners who have been redeemed by their faith in Christ, by the blood of the Lamb, through the finished work of Christ, that they have been, in New Testament words, born again. They have experienced a spiritual rebirth that while we may experience physical death, we will not face eternal death in the sense of we enjoy God, our Creator, forever. Neither group, neither group will live sinless on this earth. The question is, if we are redeemed, we will be ultimately delivered. Our salvation will be ultimately realized through our faith in Christ. And those who die without Christ will not, in fact, enjoy an eternity with their creator. Now, in closing, I want you to notice how this plays out. Saul has done his best to manipulate David, to get David killed. He's going to continue to do that, by the way. 
But in chapter 18, the very final verse of that chapter, verse 30 says, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Actually, if you go back one verse, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Why? Because he was envious. He was jealous. He was resentful. He was bitter. And he was selfish. It was all about Saul. He's going to play on your people's emotions. He's going to manipulate people for his own purposes in hopes that he gets what he wants. David dead. Now, maybe there's no one in your life that you want to see physically die, prayfully not. But who is it that's controlling your life right now because you're so resentful and bitter and jealous of? Are you a person that manipulates the situation to get things to your own advantage? If you are, I would challenge you this morning that that doesn't reflect the character of God. That our goal as followers of Christ are to develop a character that reflects Christ's likeness, a character that looks much more like David, who, by the way, will prove he is not sinless, but a character that is much more like David than Saul. So as we close, I ask you this simple question. You are a sinner. So am I. Are you saved by grace or have you rejected God? Are you a person who has a character like David or a character like Saul who just sees life as a game to play to your own advantage? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for time around this text and your word today. I pray, God, that if there is someone here in our service that is wrestling with their salvation, not sure yet of their redemption, I pray that before they leave, they may speak with someone and find a person that can show them from the Bible where it talks about redemption and how someone can come to know Christ. I pray that there's one here today that needs to experience salvation, that they would uh, resolve that before they leave. God, I pray for believers, many Christians here today, that maybe we are struggling with a particular snare. There's something in our lives that maybe trips us up on a regular basis. I pray for your grace and mercy in that, and that we would seek help and assistance with those that, that can help us through those difficult times and those temptations. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we are dismissed today. Go our separate ways, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good day. I'll be here at the front if you have any questions that you would like to have answered.